everybody. On today's episode of Still to be Determined, Matt and I are going to be talking about, well, mainly your feedback. We're also going to be chatting a little bit with one Jason Korb. Jason is the principal architect at Korb and Associates Architects, who designed the Ascent Building in Milwaukee. And this is a unique building in the fact that it is mass timber. It's currently the tallest mass timber building in the world. And I say currently because as Matt has shared in the comments, <laughs> more are on the way. So yes. mass timber, its use and its safety features is going to be the subject of a long form interview that Matt did with Jason. And we'll be going to that in a little bit. But for right now, we're starting off with some comments from the mailbag, basically your comments on previous videos and episodes that we've done. Before we get into that, just to remind everybody of who the heck we are, I'm Sean <laughs> Farrell. I'm a writer. I write some sci-fi. I write some stuff for kids, including the most recently re released The Sinister Secrets of Singe, which is a middle-grade adventure book, which is out now, available everywhere. And with me, of course, as usual, is my brother, Matt. He's that Matt of Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at emerging tech and its impact on our lives. Matt, how are you doing this weekend? I'm doing great. It's been a good weekend. How about you? It's been a great weekend, except for the fact that it's been about 4 million percent humidity here yeah, in the New York City humid. area. I <laughs> step outside and immediately moss begins to grow on my back. <laughs> the big question is, why is my back always facing north? I can't that's, explain. That, that's, a, that's, that's the mystery of, of, of all right. of us right now. Yeah. That's right. I guess I'm always facing the sun. Just <laughs> Before we jump into Matt's discussion with Jason, some comments from our previous episodes, like this one from episode 173, which was our discussion around First Light's research. First Light is the company that is developing based on the BFG, the big friendly gun, which mm -hmm. the adolescent part of my brain always wants to use different words in that acronym, yes. but I won't go into that. The BFG railgun, which is... In concept to fire a basically a coin shaped object into another object at such a speed that fusion will take place. Energy will be released. Everybody will sing. We'll all enjoy a Coke. And then that'll be <laughs> the end of it. But before all that can happen, First Light is in the early steps of the research and Matt and I just had a quick conversation because I forgot which stage they were on. They're at stage three. So there was this comment from Canuck Lug who wrote after first light reaches machine four, their plan is to make a 50 megawatt electricity demonstrator and hope to completely financing it by pr producing extra tritium just when it's at its highest demand and lowest supply. The full size mm -hmm. reactor after that, I'm recalling, will be like 700 megawatts. Nick, who is part of the team, Matt, you can jump in now and remind me if Nick is, in fact, He's one the of the lead researchers on this. Yes. He's the founder. Yep. Yes. Nick did a paper where he did a Monte Carlo simulation of all the parameters that affect the cost and output of a first light machine. So you see the lowest and the highest prices and where the most likely price point of the possible combos cluster. The lowest price was $20 per megawatt hour, which would certainly be fantastic while the cluster seemed to be from the 40 to $70 range, as I recall. So they have advertised their target as 45 megawatt hours, $45 per megawatt hour. 
that might compete with 50% of the energy market with solar and wind making up the first 50%, getting more expensive with more storage and backup as it goes higher. I think this mm -hmm. was really interesting background information. Thank you jumping for jumping in, Canuck. Clearly, you are a person who knows the details of what's going on, not only with the company, but with the market. So thank yep. you for jumping in. Matt, I wanted to visit this with you a little bit. Is everything he's saying in line with what you were hearing in your discussions and is their ultimate goal? Did they basically take a targeted approach to say, we don't necessarily want to guarantee that we'll be the lowest in the market. We just want to say we're going to be competitive. It's, what's funny is every fusion company says something along those lines. We will be price competitive. It's usually what they say, because obviously it's really hard to predict. But Nick, like that paper he mentioned, uh, my conversations with him, he basically touched on all those points with me in person about how they're targeting that $20, but most of the clusters are going to be around that $40 kind of range. It, it fits with what he was saying. They've got that targeted approach of how they're going to overproduce tritium in the beginning because that's going to help give them the money they need to build the future demonstrator plant, all those kind of things. Mm -hmm. they've, they've figured out how they want these dominoes to fall to be able to fund everything. It's part of the reason why they're getting so much investment from the private, private investors because they have a very clear roadmap ahead of them. It's very logical very engineering. <laughs> you can tell he's an engineer because it's like an physicist. It's like, because mm -hmm. he's taking this very logical approach of how everything's supposed to fall into place. So yes, it's, it's right in line with what I had talked about with Nick. I'm curious. And I would invite you to talk a little bit, and this is pretty much off the cuff. You've read a book about this. So I invite you to jump in now with the vision provided by around the concept of disruption mm -hmm. and how this perhaps applies to fusion tech and where these companies see themselves going into the market. If you could give us a quick snapshot of what I mean by disruption, and then do you see these companies as taking that model as their way in? Yes, absolutely. It's not a good analogy because I'm going to go from energy generation to consumer technology, but the it's recent memory for everybody, the iPhone moment. It's like when the iPhone came out, you had companies like Microsoft and Blackberry saying, they're not just going to walk in here and take over the phone industry and Blackberry basically putting blinders on saying, you know, that, that touchscreen thing doesn't work. They customers, they want keyboards. It's like, there was all this kind of like blindness to what was happening. And then you have this person that comes in, this company comes in and basically just turns the everything upside down and creates something that's a better mousetrap that people actually want to use that has value to it. That's usually what happens in disruption is that the people who are getting disrupted recognize the disruption, but they're in denial about the disruption. And that's kind of what's going to happen with companies like Helion and First Light Fusion and General Fusion and Commonwealth Fusion Systems. They're trying to create this whole new approach of generating electricity that nobody thinks is going to ever happen. Because if you look at the comments, nobody thinks fusion is going to happen, but at some point it will. And at that point when it does, it's like, it's going to be <laughs> kind of a reckoning in the ener en energy industry because it's going to be completely disruptive. It's going to anything that's a natural gas coal plant or coal plant or anything like that is just going to be at that point done. It's just... It's already, you could already make the argument. It's kind of done now with renewables, with wind and solar and hydro. 
because that technically can we do have the know how now to get off of fossil fuels and there is a disruption happening with renewables and the fossil fuel industry that's already happening but once we have the nuclear fusion industry kind of kick into gear it's going to be another disruption at that point um i don't think it's going to overtake renewables in the sense of like it's going to make solar worth worthless to do but it's definitely going to be like the final nail in the coffin for the fossil fuel industry and it's just going to be the future of everything will be fusion solar wind hydro that's going to be what's going to be around the world or fission. so it's like or fission yeah yeah, yeah f- fission i don't mean to leave that out it is absolutely part of the mix but yeah. it's one of those even when you take fusion out of the equation there's already disruptions happening today with the stuff we have in place today battery energy storage all those kind of things there's a lot of the market that's in this blinder they're not just going to walk in here and take over the industry well they already are and you're either in denial about it or you do recognize it and you're literally lying to try to make sure that you don't lose investment (laughs) because yeah you see the writing on the wall so it's definitely happening and the fusion industry is the one that's the i don't want to say the hardest (laughs) to call out but it's because nobody has successfully done it yet yeah. which makes it very easy for people to discount it. But there's, it's, it's going to be, it's yeah. seriously going to be like a light switch. As soon as somebody does it, it's just like all bets are off. It's just like at the, at, at some point it's going to happen. And when that does happen, it's just going to be a holy crap. Everything just goes upside down. I'll probably regret giving this away for free, but to whichever fusion company is the first to market <laughs> billboards that simply say, fossil fuel energy that's so last millennium it's just you know (laughs) that's right there for you to take also from our previous episodes from episode 174 there was a note from one of our viewers that was about a way to handle insulation and i thought this was clever they wrote our flat had carpet flooring when my parents bought it we all hated it so as soon as they could afford it they changed it actually my dad and a friend if i recall correctly to cork flooring. It wasn't radiate heat, but it certainly was warm and a decent distance away from the radiator. I really liked it. I thought that that was a nice reminder that not all home solutions have to be high tech. They don't have to be cutting edge sometimes. And this goes back to something Matt and I say ad nauseum, the right tool for the right job. So if you are hoping to create a more sustainable, yeah, you know, lifestyle and you live in an old home, you go with the tool that's going to provide you with the right sort of result. I live in a building that was built probably in 1920. It is, we have two floors, one of them being a converted basement, which has a tile floor. The tile actually helps keep it very cool. It is pulling like the heat gets like wicked away. So, in the high heat that we've been having here in New York city, our basement tends to feel air conditioned compared to the upstairs. So that's just a simple like benefit of a tile floor as it would be different. I think if we had carpeting covering everything and then all that warmth that would be down here would just be sitting in the room as opposed to be getting wicked away. Same goes with this kind of cork flooring, like the simplicity of putting on a cork floor and keeping heat, in the room as opposed to wicking away kept it nice and cozy so yeah it's a good the, reminder the right tool for the right job the, the flooring we have in our basement we have a finished basement too 
in a 1950s built house and it gets very cold down there in the winter. It's great in the summer, like you just mentioned, but in the winter it gets very, very cold. And when we had the, we had a little bit of a flood, we had to do some work and we replaced the flooring with a fiberglass like laminate that has a backing. That's I think it's a quarter inch thick piece of cork, just like that. So it's naturally insulating and that floor down there in the middle of winter, it's very comfortable because it's got that cork backing. And then the bathroom down there, it's a tile floor like what you got. And it's really funny to walk from the floor that's that got the cork backing into the tile floor. And it's just like suddenly you're like, oh, my feet are freezing. <laughs> it's <like> really <laughs> cold in here. Right. But on the other floor, it's it's very comfortable. So thank you to our listeners for jumping into the comments. We always appreciate it. Please jump into the comments again. And I would encourage you to remember, and there were some actually comments in our most recent episode, weighing in on how people feel about my planned restructuring of these conversations. I asked everybody for feedback saying, do you think that a wide ranging going through multiple episodes and revisiting number of topics would be better than our deep dives? And there were a lot of responses that were like, either whatever you guys prefer is what I like, or yeah, wide ranging sounds like a lot of fun. And there were a couple of people who said deep dives are better, but we're going to be trying to do a nice melding of both. So I encourage people to jump into the comments on not only this episode, but if you've watched an older episode, put some comments on those older episodes too, because I am going back and taking a look to make sure that we are having conversations that reflect your current thinking and anything you say about an older episode that might be new information is a nice reminder to us to revisit topics and go back and have a new discussion on those things. So please jump into those comments. Now on to Matt's conversation with Jason Korb. Once again, Jason Korb, the principal architect at Korb and Associate Architects and the responsible party behind the engineered wood building in Milwaukee that is now one of the first signs that we have a new building material coming into our city constructions. Hi, Jason. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, good afternoon. Thank you. Yeah. So I just want to ask you before we get into the conversation where I want to talk to you about the ascent building you designed and using wood and large scale construction like that. I'd, I'd like to learn a little bit more about you specifically, because I know you've been designing buildings like this for decades now. Could you kind of give me a little bit of your background? Sure. Uh, very briefly, uh, I am. Uh, my name is Jason Korb. I'm an architect in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, co-founded an architecture practice in 2006 with a partner, bought that partner out in 2015 and started working with current mass timber client in 2017 and started exploring mass timber with them in 2018. And so was Ascent the first timber building that you've designed? It's the first building that its primary structural system is mass timber. Uh, We've worked on other timber buildings in the past, but Typically, historically, those heavy timber elements have been roof structures for specialty buildings, churches, academic buildings, etc. So what was the impetus behind designing Ascent primarily as a timber building? So we had been chatting back and forth with our client in 2017 about the potential of building uh, mid-rise and high-rise residential buildings out of mass timber. And initially, they were interested in it as an aesthetic differentiator. So the way that it came together was they were seeing that differentiator in the developers of father and son team within a week of of each other independently. They came together on the idea of 
pursuing a timber building on a property that they had owned for about 12 to 15 years. They had gotten prior to the Great Recession, a 19-story residential high-rise approved on that site. The project was put on hold in 2009, as were many projects. And during 2017, 2018, as they became more acquainted with the idea that you could build mid-rise and high-rise buildings primarily out of timber, they directed us to sort of take a look at it. That was in March of 2018. Again, primarily they were initially interested in the material as an aesthetic differentiator right. in a fairly crowded multifamily market. Right. So it was mainly aesthetic, which leads me to a question of the structural question around it. Is there a significant difference between using, are, were you using CLT, which is, was it cross laminated timber? Was that what was used? That was one of the timber components used. So the timber components in ascent and in most of these types of buildings basically come in two flavors. And you've mentioned the first one, which is cross laminated timber. And that is exactly what it sounds like. Layers of dimensional lumber laminated on top of each other perpendicularly. So they develop strength in two directions. Those are used primarily for floor assemblies, but can also be used for walls. The other timber components that we see are used for uh, columns and beams, and they are glue laminated timber. And those are typically timber sections that are laminated together in one direction. And again, those are primarily columns and beams. Mm -hmm. Are there any advantages to using wood in a construction like this over concrete or steel? So uh, there are, as I mentioned, you know, our, our clients initial desire to investigate this material was aesthetic, but as they really dug into it, they became as, as did we, we already sort of knew it, but they became increasingly aware of its environmental benefits. And so the single biggest benefit for a developer that is interested in sustainable development is the carbon capture of timber. That is these assemblies are made from trees that are not old growth forests but they replicate the behavior of old heavy timber. So here in Milwaukee, they were very, and other Midwest cities, frankly, uh, they were very acquainted with heavy timber buildings, which everybody loves, largely built in the late 19th century. However, to create heavy timber buildings, you're harvesting trees that are oftentimes up to 800 years old to get the wood sections needed for members of that size. Mass timber recreates the structural qualities of, of the old heavy timber buildings. However, it's much more rapidly renewable because as I mentioned, it's smaller sections of dimensional lumber that are laminated together under pressure and mm -hmm. as such can be regrown very quickly. So there's a, there's a carbon capture benefit and there's a regeneration benefit. So for instance, at Ascent, which we're gonna be talking about, our structural engineer estimates that even without planting new trees to replace the ones that are harvested, which, which they do, by the way, the, the, the wood fiber in that building will be replaced by natural growth, in our case, in North American forests, the analysis was done in approximately 25 minutes. And again, wow. that's without planting any new trees. And the, <laughs> the, the folks that supply this timber, you know, for every one they take, they plant two or three because they yeah. own their own forest. It's in their interest to keep them healthy. <laughs> right, exactly. It's, it's a crop. They probably look at it as a it's crop. A crop. Or exactly. Okay. And one, one of the big questions that always comes up around buildings like this, I've also heard this about just homes from European viewers that watch my channel of mm -hmm. 
I can't believe Americans still build homes out of wood. We do brick or concrete and they can't burn. Mm-hmm. What about the burning concern for a skyscraper? Because the one of the it's it's horrifying to think of a, a fire in a skyscraper because you could get trapped. But correct, it's what about how, how's the fire resistance? How how does this compare to a building out of concrete or steel? So the codes dictate here or in Europe. So mass timber behaves very differently than I believe what your your other viewers and subscribers are talking about. Where. You know, we build homes in this country primarily out of lightweight stick construction, two by fours, two by sixes, members with small cross sections. The timber sections in mass timber buildings in ascent are up to over 40 inches in in depth. And so basically imagine you're camping and you throw a gigantic log on the campfire. It doesn't (laughs) burn. I mean, it's there in the morning when you wake up. And so what happens is when you get sections of wood that are that large, unless they're subjected to, you know, spectacular levels of energy, the outer layer of that wood chars and the char layer prohibits the flow of oxygen into the center of the member and the wood basically fireproofs itself. And that's (laughs) been proven in test after test. So in our building, because we crossed certain height thresholds, the required fire ratings to match, for instance, the safety factor of a concrete building or a steel building, that that test had to be done by third party agencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our case, the, the test that needed to be done was actually performed by the Forest Products Lab in Madison, Wisconsin, which is you know a subsidiary of the Department of Agriculture. So our testing, our independent testing was performed effectively by the United States federal government. Other tests as required to prove up the fire safety of the system had already been performed uh, largely in Oregon and in San Antonio, Texas for other components of the system because the way these buildings get approved is that the the code allows a performance-based path to approval. So if you can prove your building performs as well in a fire, for instance, as a concrete building or a steel building, the, co- the building code allows for a path to approval, which is what happened here in Milwaukee. It's fascinating that it the way it burns and chars, it basically protects itself. After a certain it point, it just can't burn anymore. That's something That's, that I was not aware of. <laughs> it, well, it, it does require that mass, right? Yeah, so right. a two by six stud in a wood building, as, as your viewers are talking about, simply doesn't have the mass. We have a protective layer, for instance, on our vertical structure at Ascent. It's four and a half inches thick. It is structurally unnecessary. It exists to protect the part of the member that is structurally necessary. (laughs) And the way codes work in in this country anyway, is uh, it's a survivability basically factor. So For instance, if you cross 180 feet in height, your structure has to survive in a fire for three hours. Right. And so in a timber building, that basically means that the protective layer, and this has to be proven again through third-party testing, has to, you have to prove that the, the part of the member that is not part of that protective layer is still intact after being burned for three hours. And so the testing that we were participating in, again, performed by the Forest Products Lab, they proved that, that was correct. And what they found was that the, you know, they're burning this thing in a chamber for three hours. The exterior of the members at 1200 degrees, but in the center, it's still 75 degrees. That's how well the protective layer works. 
Wow. Because they okay. embedded they embedded sensors in the in the members all the way to the center. So, so they knew exactly what the temperature was throughout. They knew exactly what it was at all layers of the member. Correct. Oh, that's fascinating. Do they have to do do you do similar testing with concrete or steel buildings or is that just kind of a known quantity? It's it's a known quantity. I mean, what whatever test the short answer is that testing has been done those materials are known quantities. Those those tests have been done for you know many many decades so right. those are to your point those are known quantities so steel requires protection in in taller buildings so um, steel behaves terribly in fires much worse than wood actually so when you build tall buildings in steel there's synthetic fireproofing that is sprayed on them they're wrapped in drywall so you're protecting that it's the same principle you're protecting that structural member with other materials mm -hmm. um, in concrete, the, the weak point again is steel. You're protecting the rebar in that concrete with more concrete. <laughs> so in timber, you're protecting the timber with more timber. So all of these systems actually get protected. The methodology is the same, but the path to get there is different. Well, that's fascinating. That's mm -hmm. fascinating. Well, it kind of leans into one of the reasons I'm doing this video is because mass timber skyscrapers are relatively new. This is kind of a new phenomenon that's starting to catch on. And right now I know Ascent currently holds the title for the tallest hybrid timber building. <laughs> Was that a goal of, of building it? Did you want to get the tallest or is that just, it just happened to work out that way? It, it happened to work out that way. So when we were directed by Newland, our client, to pursue the feasibility of a timber building, our directive was to pursue a 19 story building. And the reason for that is that that is the height of the building that they had gotten approved prior to the Great Recession. So, for instance, from a real estate developer standpoint, they knew that they could get that approved again because it, it, a building of that height had already been. Approved. And then as the project evolved, frankly, the economics of the project worked better if they added a few floors. So what happened was they added two floors to help the economics of the, of the project before it was ever even announced, which happened in the fall of 2018. And during design, it again, for economic reasons, it, it made sense for them to come back to us and say, we want to add two more floors. And the final sort of boost in height happened during the final sort of detailed construction documents where part of the building that we thought was uninhabitable just because we thought it was going to be the ceilings would be too low to occupy became habitable hmm. so a number of program elements primarily storage got moved out of the building's parking structure and into the lower level and so we went to the developer and said well we've figured out how to park 35 more cars in the same area hmm. um, and so then they then had a choice to make they could remove parking or they could add residences. And so they elected to add two more floors, taking us to 25, which is where we where we landed. And then what we found was that, frankly, at that point, we were within about four feet of the world record. So we changed the roof and we beat it by a few feet. <laughs> so but it was never it was never our goal or the developer's goal to be the tallest it sort of evolved into that. And we're already being passed. We already knew, we knew we would be from day one. Yeah. There's a building, which is a extreme hybrid in Sydney, Australia, that's going to cross 600 feet. Wow. Um, okay. Well, I call that building a kitchen sink building. The vertical structure is steel. 
the cores are concrete and the floors are timber. So I think, in my opinion, you could barely call that a timber building, but I might be, <laughs> I might be biased. I think you might be biased, a little bit. but I think you're also, I think you're also correct though. It's so, still a very cool building, by the way. So. Yeah. So when it comes to mass timber for the height, one question I do have, is there a limitation for how tall you could make a building constructing it the way you did? I think there's technical limitations. I mean, part of, part of what got my client excited about mass timber was in 2017, he saw a case study that was done by Perkins and Will and Thornton Tomasetti, architect and structural engineer, respectively. They did a case study. It was never meant to be built. It was a case study called River Beach, and it was a theoretical building in Chicago. And they basically, these two firms, did the design and engineering and demonstrated that you could, in fact, build a timber building up to 80 floors in height. And so, and it's it's a beautiful case study. But is it financially feasible? Probably not. So what happens is timber is like any other building material. The taller you make it, the more robust the structure needs to be to become. So technically speaking, if we were to apply the methodology we used at Ascent, technically speaking right now, we could build a mass timber building under the approvals we've already received up to 420 feet tall. Whoa, okay. The, the But the technical challenges as you start to approach that height become greater and greater and to the point where it probably becomes financially infeasible. That right. is, the columns on the lower level will become so huge that, you know, they're, they're eating up, you know, too much of your floor for it to be viable. Right. So, I mean, so- our, our largest columns on our bottom floor in some dimensions are over 41 inches wide. Now imagine you're adding another 10 floors of weight to that. So, <laughs> yeah. so it's, it's a practical issue and an economics issue that would just prevent it from getting too tall. That's, we believe that's correct. And that's why right. these hybrid systems are so important to my kind of joke about the building in Sydney. To build that building 600 feet tall with timber columns, those columns would have been out of control from a size standpoint. Which right. is why they're being done in steel. But even in a hybrid format, you're still getting some of the benefits you talked about earlier. Of that is correct. You would still get a steel. significant amount of carbon capture. You also gain uh, great efficiencies in construction speed because it's all prefabricated. And you know other benefits. So there's carbon capture, there's speed, there's carbon emissions during construction. For example, we saved thousands of, of truck trips by concrete hmm. mixing trucks to the job site as opposed to a concrete building. Huh. And Ascent, the timber structure is 19 stories tall. It was delivered by one truck, one truck and one driver, just going back and forth between our project site and the port of Milwaukee, where the timber <laughs> was staged. And it was a flatbed truck. They would load what they needed to load on it for that day, make a few trips back and forth. If it was a, a concrete building on poor day, you know, they would be ha- they would have lines of concrete mixing trucks around the block. Anyone that's watched a concrete high rise get built has seen this. We learned this after the fact. A fully loaded concrete mixing truck gets three miles to the gallon because it turns out concrete is very heavy. So imagine how many concrete mixing truck trips we didn't take during construction. And the construction was seven months of timber. So the that's other kind of carbon fast. benefits became clear after the fact. It's kind of fascinating. It sounds like there's a lot of some of the benefits. It's kind of like there's a sweet spot for the size and type of building you're building because then you can really maximize on the you're making it faster, less back and forth or less machinery needed to bring things back and forth. Sure. So it's like if, if you can hit that sweet spot, it sounds like economically it absolutely can work. It's interesting. The material, at least in you know 
2020 or even today, in most markets cost more. So the cost premium is easy to quantify. You know, concrete costs $35 a square foot, timber costs 40. You add that up across, you know, hundreds of thousands of square feet, that's a big number. But there are savings that are a little more difficult to quantify. For instance, a few things. Ascent is built on poor soils, which means that we had to drive steel piles, you know, up to 180 feet into the ground for its foundations. If you've ever been near an active pile driver, A, they're environmentally nasty. They're awful to be around. Pile material is huge steel pipes filled with concrete. Because the timber is so much lighter than concrete, we had to drive approximately 100 fewer piles than we would have <laughs> if it was a concrete building. We saved a month on schedule because of that, in addition to the cost of the piles and saving the environmental impact of those piles. So that's one example of savings in timber. Another example is if this was a concrete building on the day they were pouring a deck, they would have 30 to 40 workers on the deck. In a timber building, we have eight to 10 because wow. it's all prefabricated. And our timber supplier told us ahead of time, if you have more than 10 people on the deck, you will, they'll just be getting in each other's way. And we thought they were crazy, but it turned out they were absolutely correct. <laughs> so we had eight to 10 people on the deck putting together a 17,000 foot timber floor plate in five and a half days. So it was also almost twice as fast as concrete with a quarter of the crew. So again, the savings can be more difficult to quantify, but they're there. Our right. client estimates at the end of the day, he may be paid a one to 2% premium, but that's specific to this market, which our structural engineer has said, and he works all over the world, has said, this is a cheap concrete town. So in other towns, concrete is more expensive. Maybe the maybe it's a one to 2% savings, not a one to 2% premium. Who knows? Right. It's different it's, everywhere we go. Yeah. It's going to be a very regional thing. Very much so. And speaking of the hard to quantify, I've also been reading about how wood buildings can improve quality of life because I've been reading studies that have shown that you're more relaxed, there's less stress, it's better quality of life. Every You're absolutely correct. Every study done, the, the term you're looking for is biophilia. That is, human beings react well to being in and around natural materials. So in hospitals, people heal faster in in educational environments, people learn better if you combine natural materials with natural daylight. Study after study has proven that. Our example in Ascent is that without exception, almost without, I mean, without exception that I'm aware of, every person that we took to visit that building during construction, when we get them up onto a wood floor, the first thing they do is put their hands on it because people want to touch it and be around <laughs> it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm an architect. I love all you know, building materials, but nobody has reacted to a steel building or a concrete building that way that I've ever seen. <laughs> and, and what we found, even from an economic standpoint, is I've met people that, you know, that have moved into this building. I met one couple in particular, they moved here from Georgia, not to live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but to live in Ascent. That drew them to the area just to live in this building. Well, they were design people by trade, so it was yeah. a little, you know, they were a bit of an outlier probably, but that was that was eye-opening to say the that's least. A, that's incredible. Are there other benefits? Like, like does, does mass timber help with sound insulation? Does it help absorb sound? 
in uh, different timber, ways. That's probably the one place that it's not as good as concrete because again, okay. it weighs twenty five percent as much as concrete, and so sound is sound attenuation is developed through mass, and so if concrete weighs four times as much as timber, it's going to do better acoustically. However. And we talk about these things being hybrids, where we land in any of these buildings, timber buildings, office or residential, it's always a hybrid system. So there's t- lightweight concrete or gyp- gypsum-based concrete toppings that go on top of the timber. Mm-hmm. There's sound mats, there's finished floors. And so it's an assembly that gets built up. You have to pour a topping on the timber anyways f- to protect it from fire so that it's getting its fire protection from a topping, either concrete or gypsum-based concrete, and that protects it from the top down. And then you add sound mats and finished floors, and you get to the to the code-required soundproofing that you need. Then the difference between timber and concrete is the assembly in timber is a little more elaborate. Well, another question that would come up from people that are concerned about the structural integrity is how would this building handle severe weather? earthquakes or mm-hmm. other kind of harsh environments how would it's it a good weather question. that and timely i mean so in our in our case our weather our our sort of lateral resistance or you know forces trying to push a building over which is in many cases more difficult to deal with than gravity in our case we're governed by wind so high winds can try to push buildings over um, you generate basically, there's a number of ways to handle it. You generate that lateral stability through the building cores in any high rise. So at Ascend, for instance, our elevator core is a concrete core that goes all the way up. Our second fire stair core is a concrete core that goes all the way up. So those forces that are trying to push a building over get translated into that core and then down to the ground. Again, it's a hybrid, right? So the timber is handling all of the gravity, but the, the lateral forces or the tipping over forces, if you wanted to get technical, are, are handled by concrete. Now, even as recently as two weeks ago, because many of the early approvals in these buildings were done on the West Coast, obviously high seismic, there have been tests of timber cores that resist earthquake forces, for instance, very well. And timber buildings, again, because of their lightweight, they do very well in earthquakes. And so recently, and this has been, this is the latest round of testing, a pure timber core tested against, you know, at least a seven magnitude earthquake. They rock, but they don't collapse. So they're, they have flexibility built into them. Right. Because, you know, the first timber high rise in the United States that got approved was in Portland, Oregon, which is a high seismic zone. And so not only did they have to prove up fire and they had to prove up gravity and they had to prove up everything they had to prove that the thing would survive an earthquake before they received Mm -hmm. permits and and they did and the building i'm referencing was not built it was permitted but not built it was called framework it passed all of those seismic tests with flying color that's incredible you may get seasick on the top floor, but that happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I would not to be. I would not want to go through that. But it's good no, to know. Well, that I would no, it. but you yeah. know, it's a it's a bend don't break. I mean, steel behaves much the same way. The strength in steel in that kind of event is bend don't break. Right. So. Right. So in in building ascent, is there because it's the first building of that type that you've done? Is there's what's the biggest thing that you learned from the process of designing that building? Mm. There, I don't know if there's one I could put my finger on. Top three. <laughs> 
Top, well, top number one is because it is new, at least in this country. You know, there have been a few timber high rises built in Europe. It's a different permitting process and the engineering is different. But what we found here is the single biggest thing that we needed to do is sort of coalition building. That is our first presentation of this building that we ever gave within 60 days of being asked to investigate this was to, and I won't dive into acronyms, but basically the head of the city of Milwaukee building department. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have buy-in from the leadership in that space. The, the project was probably never going to advance. And so as luck would have it, this individual at the time had a background in forestry and was already acquainted with the technology. And he didn't say yes, but he didn't say no. And so you know, he directed his staff to work with us. You know, six months later, the Milwaukee Fire Department got involved. They don't normally openly involve themselves in the permitting of buildings. They did on this one. They became great partners. Both the city and the fire department took a, in their words, a trust but verify position. That is, the path in the building code existed to allow this, Mm -hmm. but the building code is a floor, not a ceiling. So, the path to do this exists almost anywhere in America right now, for instance, will the building officials accept it? And so both the city of Milwaukee's building department and the fire department, they, they went out of their way. They went to Madison and witnessed the fire test with us. They were on site during construction, figuring out or watching us figure out how to put the thing together. And they became great partners. And I'm, you know, I, I consider them friends now through all of this in We've actually stayed in touch even since the building has been completed and Milwaukee fire chief and a few of uh, his associates and colleagues, uh, deputy chiefs, they've been kind enough to spend their time talking to other fire services around the country and sort of shared their experiences with wow. allowing this to you know, move ahead. Because if the fire department didn't accept the science, this was never going to happen. And in the words of our fire chief, they trusted, they looked at the science and they trusted the science. It sounds like you had a really good relationship and it, it's also we, good that they were, they were very involved. They were very involved and we were astoundingly lucky that these individuals were all open-minded. Now, had we failed any of these tests, that would have been a different story, but most of the testing required to do this had already been done. We had a few new ones that needed to be done. Again, the three-hour fire test that was done in Madison and then a certain adhesive test that was done in San Antonio in 2020. But other than that, a lot of the, a lot of the homework had already been done by others and we just took mm-hmm. advantage of it. So would you, are you interested in designing and building more ha- buildings like this? Are you? We are. Just, and our, our client that, that you know, developed Ascent, they're not done. They're looking at doing these in other cities. They're looking at breaking their own height record within reason. As I said, the <laughs> economics will hit, become a wall at some point yeah. because these things have to be financially feasible. But the, I mean, so, and then the other part of it is if we were to design this building in 2023, it would not be built the way it was built in 2020 because the technology is advancing so fast that things that we had to do to connect thing pieces, for instance, in 2020, the way that those connections can be put together are 
new connections have been designed and tested since then that will cost much less money and they will make this technology more widely available. So as I mentioned, our fire department here in Milwaukee, they, they, for instance, they spoke with their colleagues in the fire service in St. Louis, Missouri, because we're trying to do a similar building there. And they, again, they graciously took time to share their experience with the fire service in St. Louis. You know, we're looking at other states and they, they don't all have to be tall. I mean, we have one that's going to break ground in Western Michigan next week that's six stories tall, but they saw the they saw the aesthetics and they saw the environmental benefits. They wanted it for their project. Again, their project is six stories tall. It's great. Um, less of a heavy code lift, but the benefits are still there. It, it sounds like since it's evolving quickly, it's typical for like mass manufacturing. It's like the more that it gets done, the cheaper it becomes, the easier it becomes. Correct. So as more of this happens, it's going to get easier and easier for more people to do it. My, my client, my son client, likens it to Tesla, right? So Tesla's yeah. business model was yeah. the first car they built was insanely expensive, but every generation that they rolled out became more and more afford affordable as mass adoption took place. And so I think we're starting to see that in mass timber and we'll see how it evolves. Well, it sounds like you have an optimistic take on the future of mass timber. I, I think so. As, as I said, you know, in Milwaukee anyways, we kept going until somebody said no and no one said no yet. So we just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad they didn't say no. Uh, yep, it's, so are we. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ascent is an absolutely beautiful building. It's like, oh, I hope you. to get out to Milwaukee to see it in person because it's absolutely yep. gorgeous. That's great. Thank well, you. Well, that's all the questions I had for you. Is there anything else that you wanted to bring up about Ascent or the process? Off the top of my head, nothing's really coming to mind. So, All right. Well, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for uh, talking to me. That was great. Thanks for your time. I hope everybody enjoyed that conversation with Jason. And once again, please feel free to jump into the comments. Let us know what you think about what Jason said. And is there any kind of follow-up that you'd be interested in hearing about? We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to support the show, please consider reviewing us on YouTube, Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever it was you found us, go back there, leave a review. Don't forget to subscribe and please do tell your friends. Word of mouth really does matter and helps us grow the channel. And if you'd like to more directly support us, you can click the join button on YouTube you can also go to stilltbd.fm, click the become a supporter button, which I have started to think of as the throw coins at my head button because, <laughs> yep, we hear the plink, we feel the, the bruise form, but we also appreciate the support. All of those options are great ways to support the podcast. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening or watching, and we'll talk to you next time.